The song we just sang together was the prayer of illumination before looking into the Word, so I invite you even now to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we will be reading on page 939 in your pew Bible, verses 8 through 17 of Romans 1. And I invite you to follow along as I read, and then we will look into this text together, the completion of Paul's introduction to his letter to Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So reads the word of God. This morning, we are continuing on with Paul's introduction to his letter to the church at Rome, as we just mentioned, and today's passage finishes with a statement from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. We just read it together, the righteous shall live by faith. So even as we work through this text today, that's the statement that we want in our minds as we go from this place. We're going to head toward it through the course of this message, God willing, and then we're going to camp on it right at the end and hear something about what it means that the righteous will live by faith in this dense theme statement that Paul has made in verses 16 and 17, and really in verses 14 through 17, and really 8 through 17, and really 1 through 17, as we saw last week. So that's the statement we want in our minds as we go, pondering that reality and living into it. The righteous shall live by faith. So let's look at the three remaining sections of this introduction this morning, and you see them listed in your bulletin there. First, Paul gives thanks for the Roman church, verses 8 through 10. Then Paul desires to visit the Roman church, verses 11 to 13. And then Paul affirms the gospel affirms the gospel, not preaches it yet, but affirms the gospel to the Roman church, verses 14 through 17. And we will spend the vast majority of our time on point three this morning, verses 14 through 17. But first, Paul gives thanks for the Roman church here in verses 8 through 10. Unfamiliar as he was or may have been with this Roman church, and much is made about that in the writing, that there was no relationship, no connection 
known between Paul and this church prior to his actually arriving in Rome, as we read about there at the end of Acts. They nevertheless hold a deep place in his heart. Paul is thankful to God for this church. It's a church that's not free of trouble. It's a church that surely is made up of Jew and Gentile alike. That's why that theme is so prominent in this letter. There almost surely was tension between them because we know there was an edict from the emperor that expelled the Jews from Rome for a time because of the uproar and, and, and uh, dissent that was being caused in the city because of the message we believe of the preaching of Christ. I say we believe because it's, it's just a complex historical argument, but what we do know is that the Jews were expelled and Priscilla and Aquila were part of that we read about in the book of Acts. So Paul has a deep love for this church already. He's thankful to God for them that their faith, as you can see there in verse 8, is so widely known and celebrated throughout the known world at the time. And he prays for them regularly, he says. Verse 9, without ceasing, on into verse 10, asking that somehow by God's will he may at last succeed in visiting them. He's often intended to visit them, but something has always hindered him. You can see that in verse 10, verse 13, but also something always hindering him. That's the language that he actually came back to in chapter 15, verse 22, talking about the fact that he just hadn't been able to get to Rome. He trusted it was God's will, and so he's appealing to God's will right here in verse 10 as he uh, announces his plans to them, but he does feel like he's been kept from visiting them prior so that's our first section. Paul's thanksgiving and prayers then bleed right into his expression of deep desire to come and see them. And his passion for these plans is interwoven with his longing for Christian fellowship with this church. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then, parenthetically, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And this longing then has an intended outcome, and you see why he focused on his own, the exercise of his own gift first. When you see in verse 13, he says, I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, if you or I said something like this, it could sound prideful. I, I want to come in there among you and exercise my gift so that it will reap a benefit. Wow, okay, you do that, Paul. But you know what? This is the Apostle Paul. Paul knows that he's been called and gifted by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He never spotlights himself, but he knows that the blessing and gifting and calling of God are upon him and that he has an obligation, a responsibility to come and bring the gospel to this city. So he knows that the exercise of his apostolic gift will bear evangelistic fruit there in Rome and that that evangelistic fruit will end up being a blessing to the church in Rome. They will be blessed by God's appointed apostle coming to the city and preaching the gospel among them. They can count on that, and Paul knows it in advance. But he also wants to be blessed by their spiritual gifts as well because he has celebrated throughout his letters how each of the churches is a unique blessing to him in different ways with the very gifts that God has given to them. 
to exercise for the good of the body. So he's not, neither being falsely prideful or falsely humble. He's just saying, I am really looking forward to getting there to Rome because I know what a difference it will make to you. And I already know in seed form, at least by experience, what a difference you will make to me. And so we hear his passion to come visit them, his desire to come visit them. Then, moving into section 3 already, he explains himself a bit further in verses 14 and 15 as he begins to set up his statement of this letter's theme. He's talking further about now his calling and the exercise of it and what it will accomplish among them. And he's explaining to them his calling lest they need some accounting for it. He has spent much more time doing it in some other places, but he begins right here in verse 14 saying, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. <laughs> Again, that could land on us in a pretty unusual way. It could sound pretty condescending. Kind of like he's saying, since it's my obligation to preach to the barbarians and the foolish, then I'm glad to come and preach the gospel there in Rome. Um, as though that's who he's talking to. I don't think, though, that's what Paul is saying. Almost certainly in that first pairing, um, uh, to, uh, we see a, a, a language grouping. It's talking about the entire Gentile world broken up into language groups, both Greek-speaking groups and barbarians, ones who spoke other languages. And in the second pairing, we are almost certainly distinguishing between those who'd consider themselves learned from those who wouldn't. So regardless of what category you're in, Paul is under obligation to preach the gospel to you. This same sort of distinction between the learned and the unlearned or those that perceived themselves as learned and those that didn't uh, comes up again in 1 Corinthians 1. And so it's a category that we've seen before and surely that's what Paul seems to be talking about here in verse 14, his obligation is to Gentiles to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles no matter where they come from, no matter what they know or don't know, no matter what language they speak, God has called him to preach the gospel, to spread the kingdom of God through the proclamation of justification by faith. So he's not longing to come to Rome just because it's a great prize. Finally, he's going to get to preach in the capital of the known world, and his reputation will be built as a result. Paul has no interest in those things whatsoever. Preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is his calling. It's his assignment from God, and he's known about it since the very day the Lord interrupted his life on the road to Damascus. He's known what his life will be from that point on. That's why we have read in 1 Corinthians 9, and we mentioned it also last week, Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm under God's judgment if I don't preach the gospel because this is an assignment from him. He's just dispensing his duties. And Rome comes next. So, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we need to pause here and set up what's coming because it's 
not entirely easy to appreciate the fullness and the depth of what Paul is saying here. Here we've entered into the real thrust of this section as Paul states most directly his central theme for this letter, what he wants to accomplish in this writing. We're looking at a succession of four explanatory statements in verses 16 and 17. Let that sink in and then it'll make a whole lot more sense as we work through it. We're looking at a succession of four explanatory statements. The first three begin with four. You can see it at the beginning of verse 16, the middle of verse 16, the beginning of verse 17, and then the last of the four begins with, as it is written, for the last half of verse 17. Four explanatory statements. So at this point, we need to look back and see what they're explaining. Our attention is drawn then to the lack of a connecting word at the beginning of verse 14. And that's why we think this statement starts there. Surely there is a flow of thought from verses 8 to 13 right on into verse 14. In fact, from verses 1 to 13 right on into verse 14. But the absence of a connecting word there, as one commentator puts it, lends a certain emphasis to what follows. Very subtly then, Paul has given us an indicator by the absence of a connecting word that he so often uses and that we'll see over and over again throughout this letter. Very subtly, he's given us an indicator that an independent idea is beginning at verse 14 in the midst of a progressing thought in verses 8 to 17. So that seems to be the beginning of what's getting explained by these four explanatory statements in 16 and 17. So what it seems that he wants us to hear then in verses 14 and following is that he's obliged to preach the gospel to the whole Gentile world, verse 14. So an additional connecting word there. He's eager to preach it in Rome, verse 15. Now into verses 16 and 17, for, first connecting word into our first explanatory phrase, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome. I have to preach it to all Gentiles, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is where Paul now begins to close out his reflection on his own ministry and transitions toward an undivided focus on the nature and power of the gospel through the remainder of this opening section through chapter 3 of this letter. But he does so with one last personal affirmation here in the opening of verse 16. His statement here is that he's not ashamed of the gospel. His statement almost surely should be heard as saying, I have great confidence in the gospel. There's no wavering in my heart on the fact that this is the means by which human beings are reconciled to a holy God. And I am not ashamed to proclaim that message. All sorts of reasons why there could be shame in preaching the gospel. Right on up to and including our day. And they'll differ from one generation to the next. But it's an important statement to be able to make. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, we should hear him saying, I have great confidence in the gospel. But the fact that it's stated negatively 
suggest that this may be one of those places where we get a little window into Paul's ministry there in Rome. Some of the local color, some of the challenge that he's feeling as he writes this letter. We're aware that there were some questions regarding his ministry there in Rome, his gospel. We can see that, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 8, when he makes the statement, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? So we know that there's some wrestling going on in Rome with the gospel that Paul preaches And so he's saying here at the beginning, I'm not ashamed of this. You guys need to understand the gospel. As I preach it to you with meticulous care, I think you'll get it. But it's probably because of that kind of disposition present in Rome that he has stated it the way that he has. So he's letting them know right here that his confidence in the gospel is not lacking on any level as he brings it into the capital of the known world. He's not going to change his gospel to suit Roman sensibilities. He's also not going to come in swaggering with his gospel. He's going to come in and preach the gospel of the crucified, risen, returning Lord Jesus Christ without shame and with great confidence. For, middle of verse 16, next connecting word, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's why he's not ashamed of it. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. We can appreciate here that the power of God is made evident in the gospel. It's made evident through the incarnation and life and death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Through this work of Jesus, we can appreciate that everyone who believes can be reconciled to God. And by understanding just a bit of salvation history, we can appreciate how this message goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, emphasizing not just that the Jews are the ones through whom this salvation was delivered and made available, but also that it doesn't just reconcile Jews to the God of their salvation, but Gentiles as well. So it goes to the Jew first, recognizing their priority in the delivery of the gospel, but it, it also goes to the Gentiles, reflecting the magnitude of the gospel and the magnificence of it and the scope of it. I believe all this works together to make salvation, really, the primary quality of the gospel that's spotlighted in verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation. That's the part of the God. That's where we engage in and benefit from, are blessed by the gospel. Our salvation, our reconciliation with God, I believe all of this makes salvation the primary quality of the gospel that's spotlighted. Reconciliation with God by faith in Christ that provides all who believe with the assurance of deliverance from final judgment together with their future resurrected resurrection to eternal life with God, inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth in their sinless glorified bodies. This is salvation, as Paul will unpack it through the course of the letter. It includes all of that 
And what he's saying here is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to that end for everybody who believes. Deliverance from sin and enemies, reconciliation with God and eternal life with Him in His presence. This is salvation. Four. Next connecting word, beginning of verse 17. It, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's the power of God unto salvation because for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith. The righteousness of God here is not at all an easy description to grasp. And we're just going to take this verse in order and walk through it. The righteousness of God is not an easy description to grasp. Is it talking about God being righteous in His nature and that being made known? Or is it the fact that He confers righteous standing on those who believe? Is it judicial righteousness then, meaning our being declared not guilty before Him? Is that what's central in verse 17? Or is it His working in us such that we're enabled to live and to act righteous, righteously? Like He is righteous? Where's the focus and how are we to understand the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel from faith for faith at the beginning of verse 17? And what do we make of the fact that the righteousness of God here, whatever it means, is revealed there's a poignant word. It's uncovered. The, the, the verb is apocalypto. Recognize it? Uh, that's the word at the beginning in noun form of, of the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, apocalypsis. So the, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's uncovered. And here it's in present tense, which means continuous action. It's being, it's being uncovered. In contrast to chapter 3, verse 21, where it's used that very same verb in the perfect tense, which is a past tense uh, event with results that linger into the future. Almost surely in 321, what's being revealed is the cross of Christ, that past event that has lingering results into the present. But this here, the righteousness of God, is being revealed, it's being uncovered. And it's being uncovered with a distinct insinuation of end times fullness because of the word that's used. So the, the, the interesting points just begin to stack up at this point in these couple of short verses. To cut to the chase then on what I believe the righteousness of God is talking about here, I believe the thought is that the righteousness of God in 117 has a rich fullness to it. It is some things. It's not all the things that I just mentioned, but I'm going to walk through and give you the thoughts of what I believe is being referred to by the righteousness of God here. And it is a full description referring all at once to God's righteous nature that's being made known through the gospel. His righteous nature that's being made known such that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who believes in Him is declared righteous by faith. So it's the, the inherent righteousness of God 
judicially applied as it's being revealed in the gospel to make us righteous before him as well, righteous in standing. God acts on the behalf of those who believe, not so much to enable righteous living. I don't think that's quite what's being talked about yet. So that's one of the things that's not entirely present in the righteousness of God being revealed. We'll say more about that in a moment. But God's righteous nature being revealed such that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who believes is declared righteous by faith. God acting on their behalf, not so much to enable righteous living in all situations at this point, but to declare them not guilty before Him. The judicial declaration, that was the part that just absolutely captivated Martin Luther as he was writing on these verses. And this righteous standing, Paul says, is from faith for faith. We pointed out before, the NIV translates this, by faith from first to last. And that does seem to get at the idea in a pretty helpful way. I also appreciated Doug Moo writing on this verse where he said that it is revealed on the basis of faith leading to faith. And he believes that this is one more aspect of the Jew-Gentile distinction right here. So the gospel is revealed or the righteousness of God is revealed on the basis of Jewish faith leading to Gentile faith. That's captivating, but you could spend a long time noodling on that one to uh, get all the richness out of it. I would just like to say the most we might understand this is that the righteousness of God is received by faith and then acted on by faith. It's from faith for faith. It's believed on in faith and then acted on in faith. Now, why is that important? Well, we get to it in the second half of verse 17 with the final connecting word and the final explanatory phrase. As it is written, Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now, in this Old Testament text, human status is clearly in the crosshairs. God's people living righteously by faith. And in Habakkuk's day, living righteously by faith as they await the promised salvation that the prophet was finding so confusing in his day. He was concerned about the sin that he saw among the people of God. God says, don't worry about it. I'm sending in the Babylonians as an instrument of my judgment. Habakkuk chokes on that and says, what do you mean? They're worse than we are. And God says, well, I'm going to take care of them as well. As a matter of fact, the pride and boastfulness, the arrogance, the power with which the Babylonians come and invade my people will be the basis of their own accountability before me on judgment day. I've got this. And Habakkuk says, this is yours. That's a summary of the prophecy of Habakkuk. So in that day, Paul is quoting from that time, God's people living righteously by faith as they await the promised salvation, which will include God's judgment of Babylon, their oppressor, and there sent as his instrument of discipline in their lives, they are waiting and living righteously by faith, believing that it's going to pay off to walk with God as his covenant people, even in this tumultuous time that's coming. So the expression 
of the righteousness of God that his people were waiting for by faith in Habakkuk's day as both salvation for themselves and judgment on their enemies has now been revealed in the gospel. Habakkuk was prophetically looking forward to that day. Yes, it was anchored in Old Testament history in the life of Judah during that time, but but it's also looking forward not just to the coming of Christ, but to the final judgment that His coming ensures. The expression of the righteousness of God that His people were awaiting by faith in Habakkuk's day as both salvation for themselves and judgment for their enemies has now been revealed, uncovered in the gospel through the saving work of Christ such that by faith everyone who believes is declared righteous. Righteous standing before God, not guilty before God as they await the full and final delivery of His promised salvation when they will actually inherit that righteousness and truly be righteous like He is righteous. Until then, even in our day, we are waiting and living in righteousness by faith, not yet by fact. We still battle with sin and unrighteousness in this world. So this was what they were awaiting in Habakkuk's day, waiting the full and final delivery of his promised salvation, which will include the final judgment of all his enemies, all their oppressors. So the Romans' righteousness, and I would say now here indeed our righteousness, is still an expression of faith. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm eager to preach the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. It's the only way to be reconciled to God. And we're still living by faith in the promised deliverance of this salvation that has not yet come. So the Romans' righteousness, indeed, our righteousness, is still an expression of faith, even on this side of the cross. Although we've been declared righteous judicially through the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel, received by faith, our hope of full experiential righteousness is still future, awaiting the final delivery of our salvation. So until that day, it remains the case that only those who are righteous by faith will live. We're longing for that day, pressing on, encouraging one another on to endure in faith until that day when our salvation will finally be revealed. Profound statements. That's our takeaway thought to ponder today. As I said at the beginning, the righteous shall live by faith. If we stated this as a lesson we would switch the words around a little bit to what some commentators believe is the better translation of the latter part of verse 17. Namely, those who are righteous by faith will live. You see, there are many different ways that we might be righteous, mostly righteous in our own eyes. But surely the Pharisees in Jesus' day thought they were righteous. They were conscientiously, intentionally, legalistically obeying the law and believed that that produced righteousness. 
What Paul is saying here is that those who are righteous by faith are the ones who will live. Jesus preached the same message. Those who are righteous by faith will live. This stresses two things all at once that bring us to a conclusion this morning. The first thing that this stresses is that our efforts to live righteously day by day are an exercise of faith. Trusting in the enabling of the Spirit of God to obey the Word of God in anticipation of the day of Christ, the day of His return, the day of our salvation. And no other righteousness than the righteousness of God that is received by faith will work for us on that day. No other righteousness works. For instance, doing what seems right, but only in order to be well thought of by others, that is not a righteousness that comes by faith. It's not a righteousness that saves. We'll see as we progress through Romans that there's a sense in which it can be called righteousness. But it's not the righteousness that saves. Or doing what seems right based primarily on just a fear of being wrong. That's not the righteousness that saves. That's not a righteousness that is by faith. Or surely, doing what seems right, and what seems right is just our synonym for righteousness today, doing what seems right, believing God will be impressed at how much better we do it than others. That's not a righteousness of faith. That's not the righteousness that saves. So that's the first thing that we learn all at once as we say those who are righteous by faith will live. Our efforts to live righteously day by day are an exercise of faith, trusting in the Word of God, trusting in the empowering of the Spirit of God to live in a way that pleases God, trusting Christ as our righteousness and recognizing that there's nothing in us that commends us to Him. That's the first thing. The second thing is that in the end, It's only those who are righteous by faith who will live. So our righteousness is still an exercise of faith, and it is only those who are righteous by faith that will live. Those are the two things that it shows us all at once. I had the privilege of doing the devotionals at our basketball league this season. We're two weeks in, and I am enjoying this thoroughly. Um... We're walking through the Beatitudes at the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount toward understanding what it means to be blessed in the way that Jesus is talking about blessing in that sermon. And I'm praying, by the way, that by season end, we'll have a gym full of guys who are so blessed. And I'd love for you to be praying with me, praying with Jeff on that pursuit What we've noted here in the first two weeks, we're taking one quality each week. What we've noted in the first two weeks is that blessing begins with an understanding of the fact that there's nothing in us that God approves. That's really important. Think about that. Jesus is saying blessing begins by recognizing there's nothing blessing worthy in you. That's what it means, blessed are the poor in spirit. They've got nothing before God. Week two, 
Week two is just that blessing begins by recognizing that it really bothers me. Point number one. There's nothing in me that commends me to God, and that really bothers me. I'm troubled by that. Blessed are those who mourn. That's what it means. I'm grieved by the fact that there's nothing in me that God approves. That matters to me. As we said to the guys on Tuesday or Thursday night, if that doesn't matter to you, there is no way you're ever going to be blessed in the way Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. It's got to matter. We're not going to look for a solution to the problem that we have. Jesus said that's where blessing, the blessing of God, the approval of God that makes us deeply happy, that's two sides of blessing. That's where it begins. Well, my friends, we're, we're cultivating, what we're cultivating there is the very idea we're talking about here in Romans 1. It's only the righteousness of God that can reconcile us to God. And the righteousness of God can only be received by faith, not by anything else. You are never going to do it well enough to please God. To gain His righteousness by your own human effort. It's just not going to happen. So it's only the righteousness of God that we receive by faith that sets us right with God. That sets us up to receive the blessings of His revealed salvation. This is how it happens. It happens by faith. Trusting that in the gospel the righteousness of God has been revealed. And I receive it as the basis of my reconciliation to Him, and as the course that I pursue throughout this life, recognizing it's only those who are righteous by faith who will live. Join me now as we pray. Heavenly Father, what a rich text of Scripture this is. What a joy it is to be schooled in the faith from the very pages of Your Word such that we are caught up short, even with things we believe we believe. Even about things that we believe we know. And yet, again and again and again, as we walk through them carefully in your word, we recognize that, wow, is our rebellion run deep. Wow, are we sinful people, bent on our own gratification and our own exaltation. Oh, Father, by your grace and for your glory, break us in this body, I pray, that we might receive the righteousness of God that has been revealed in the gospel, and that we might receive it by faith, trusting that unless your righteousness is granted to us through Christ, we will never have what it takes to live righteously or to enjoy the blessing of the salvation that you've provided in Jesus. Help us, Lord God, and help us to then be pondering that truth as we leave today. Those who are righteous by faith will live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.